Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with CNN anchor Don Lemon about his new book, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Don anchors Don Lemon Tonight and led the network's coverage of the murder of George Floyd. He has been recognized with an Edward R. Murrow Award as well as three Emmys for his work. Don, welcome to That Said. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be on. It's good to talk to you. It's been a while. It's been a while. I miss you terribly. I have to tell you that. <laughs> we miss you too, Michael. So this is your second book. The the first book, Transparent, came out in, in 2011, and that was much more autobiographical than this, though this book, the, the second one that we're going to talk about, This is the Fire, has autobiography too. And I always believe, like many, that understanding one's history, one's story, is important understanding what you write about. So could you spend some time in the outset here talking a little bit about um, yourself and, and, and your family and your yeah. your upbringing, if you will? Yeah, I, I would I would call the first book a memoir. Which <laughs> if you want to call it an autobiography, you can. There 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 was an autobiographical nature to it. You're right. Uh, and for this as well, I, I can't. You know what I do best is I think is be authentic on and off camera and let people into my life and let them know who I am. So I've done that. You know, I do it on television and I do it um, in in these books. But I grew up in Louisiana, as I said in transparent. Uh, and transparent, I forget the exact quote, but just how uh, lush and sticky and smelly Louisiana is, and it kind of um, gets into inside of you, and you know, and you can't help but love it or hate it, depending. Um, and you know, I talk about Louisiana um, warts and all, um, how much I love it, and some of the things that um, I didn't love about it. But um, and I present the history of Louisiana in the book as well, where I talk about, you know, uprisings in the state and what the state was like and is like racially. So I grew up, um, was the only boy, the youngest in a family of all women. My dad died when I was young. <clears throat> my mom was divorced and then my stepdad, my, my real dad died. Uh, and then my mom remarried and then my stepdad died when I was an adult. So um, I grew up with all women raising me. So I am very respectful to women. I appreciate them. I think they're the smartest of the sexes um, and the most evolved of the sexes. And I have uh, great respect for women because they made me who I am. And that's kind of, I went to an all black Catholic school and then ended up going to a public high school that was integrated and it was kind of culture shock to me. And that's when I started to really deal with racism um, and, and um, really come in contact with racism, and then in college at LSU as well. So that was it. Well, one thing... I kind of glossed over some stuff, right? Like, you know, being molested as a kid and that kind of thing? Yeah, there was a few little things like that you glossed over, <laughs> but, but um, not as germane to our conversation. But one of the things that is germane to our conversation, and I remember, I think I was at an event with you and Tim and... You were talking about how your trip to Ghana in 2015 with your mom was so important to you. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Well, because um, it was important. We were, we were doing our history. Uh, it was a um, uh, sort of know your history, tracing, following your roots. Uh, segment that all of the anchors did on CNN and mine took me to Ghana. Um, I, it, and it was tough. It's tough for most African Americans to go back, you know, even a couple of generations because it, the records just aren't there. Uh, there, even if you are on uh, the census, it's as a tick mark, um, instead of a name. And so it's really tough in some ways to figure out where you're from. But, um, the reason it was, so such a profound experience to me is is because um it i i well not this time i'm think i'm confusing the two because i recently did my ancestry with um, professor henry lewis gates who took me all the way back further than i thought but that trip was so profound because um i shared it with the person who's most important to me in my life other than my fiance and that's my mother and um you know we we visited the slave coast castle where slaves departed 
I made that trip across the ocean to uh, America to become property in slaves. And, um, well, they were Africans. They weren't slaves when they left, they, but they, Africans who left Africa to become slaves and property here in the United States. Um, and so it was, I didn't think it, I would be so emotional about it, Michael. Um, but when we visited those dungeons and they took us to pass the door of return and they, they showed us the water, uh, where the boats took the, the, um, folks out to the ships and there were kids playing in the water, these African kids who were just carefree. It was just, it just, it was overwhelming. And our tour guide turned around and said, this was, we called this the door of return, but now we've, we've renamed it on the other side. And I want you to look up because now it's the door of return and we want you to return back through it. Um, and so that, sorry, it was originally called the door of no return. Right? It, was, it was called the door of no return. Right. Because when you, when you left those doors, that was it. Either you were some, some of the, um, they, they weren't slaves yet. But some of the captured either jumped into the water and killed themselves or tried to escape or were killed, or they boarded that ship, and that was it. So either way, it was the end of it right. for them. And so um, as an, an homage to them and to, pe- to the people who come like I did and my mom did, on the other side of the door, there's a sign now that says door of return, so that we walk back through that door and continued on with our lives and then paid um, homage and attribute we to the people who had walked through that door before us never to return. And so that's what we made a, uh, I made a commitment and a promise that I would do that. Um, and that was in large part because of the experience that I got to with my mother who sat with me the night after we had that experience. And, and it was, I think the, probably the most loving and profound and intimate conversation that, that anyone could ever have with a parent. But I think you said once that it helped you find your voice mm-hmm. as well. It did. It helped me find my voice. And I thought that I quite frankly, I thought that that was the end of it because I thought that um, it made me know that um, I had every right to the the privileges of this country and the rights of any American citizen uh, that my ancestors had were survivors and that they had helped to build this country for free. And therefore I was, um, um, you know, I, I was this, the son of all of those people and I had to honor them. And I realized that, Hey, listen, I'm an American just as much as the next guy, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, regardless of if their family came over on the Mayflower or the knee of the Prince of the Santa Maria, that I was just as entitled to the rights and privileges of America as anybody else. So it helped me find my voice. It gave me clarity. But what gave me even more clarity recently, I have to tell you, Michael, is Henry Louis Gates, who took me all the way back um, to Scottish ancestry. And that gave me even more clarity because my... Um, my roots go back, not just here in America as a slave, which is fine, which I think is fine. And I'm very proud of that, but it goes back even further. And, um, I am somebody, you know, not, and not just property and not just a tick mark on a census form. And so, um, that was all of that gave me clarity and, and an urgency that I didn't have before that I needed to use my platform for good and to inform people and especially people who like me who may not have a voice. Yeah. And and I think your, your show has evolved as your voice has evolved, um, based on the learning of, of this history. And I I think that's terrific. Mm -hmm. So the fire next time is James Baldwin's book to which you use the word homage that this, that this, book of 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 yours this is the fire is it's almost read well in tandem with um the fire next time and in the fire next time baldwin starts with this couplet from the spiritual mary don't you weep and he writes god gave noah the rainbow sign no more water the fire next time and you write, essentially, this is 
the fire. This is mm-hmm. essentially the fire next time. And you both start your book with letters, uh, James Baldwin to, to his nephew James and, and you, um, to your nephew, Trushad. Um, so can you tell us a bit, you know, sort of about the relationship between you and what James Baldwin was writing? And where, where are we? 60 years after this is, um, the 60 years. Hi, next later. time. Yeah. Well, I, I, listen, you know, God gave no, there ain't both signed, no more water, the fire next time. Yeah, well, that he, he's saying, it, unless we dealt with the, this issue of race in this country, that um, the next time it would be the fire. I mean, obviously, it's a reference to Noah's Ark and the flood, right? And so I think the as it relates to America, um, the original sin of this country, if we're talking in religious terms, is racism. It's slavery. Slavery, that's the original sin. And the taking of the land from Native Americans. So unless we dealt, unless we deal with it or dealt with it, as he was saying, in a, in a profound and um, in a fulsome way, then the, we were going to face the fire. And after the death of George Floyd and all the Floyd and all the unrest around the country, um, there's no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure in most people's minds, that we're in the fire right now. That that's the fire. Um, and you know, if you if you sit there and watch someone um, snuff the life out of a person. Um, on camera, um, with not even really caring about uh, what was happening or about their lives, not seeing their humanity, and just killing them, obviously murdering them, because that's that's what he was convicted of. If that doesn't move you, then nothing was going to move you. And I found that that did move a lot of people in this country. But the further we get away from it, um, people are beginning to forget what happened or trying to make excuses for it. So this is the fire. Unless we uh, deal with the fire now, you know, now I think it's a fire and it's containable. It's like a fireplace. Uh, but pretty soon, if we don't deal with it, it's going to be, you know, a, a four-alarm fire that's out of control. And so um, I think the fire that we're in now has to be contained, and we have to figure out how to manage it. Otherwise, I don't, I don't, I don't know what. I don't know what's going to happen, Michael. Yeah, uh, you you write, and it made me sort of sad in the sense that you write that the stages that follow death of an innocent man go from weeping to rage to blame to promises, but then the promises wither and complac- complacency sets in yeah. and it stagnates. Yeah. And I, I worry about that, Don. I worry whether or not we were in a, uh, a pivotal moment with George Floyd, but now are we moving toward complacency and stagnation? I think we've, I don't know if we're at stagnation yet, but I think we're definitely moving towards complacency because if you, all you have to do is look at the polling and it'll show you that the support for Black Lives Matter um, during the George Floyd and the unrest of the summer of 2020, the spring and summer of 2020, um, then you'll, you know, you'll, you'll see the difference. There was much more support then and there's much less support now. If you look at the people who, the number of people who thought George Floyd was killed by the police officer uh, right after it happened as to the number who thought that he was killed now, much less people think that he was killed even though he was convicted of murder. Uh, that something something else, that he was some criminal who deserves to die and that he deserved to be treated the way he was treated and that a police officer can just knock the life out of you with impunity on the street. Um, they didn't see his humanity. And of course, did George Floyd have problems? Yes, but we all have problems. Usually when police are called, this is not, it's not a happy event unless they're calling to, you know, unless you are uh, dating a police officer who's coming over to, you know, ask your hand in marriage. Usually interactions with police officers are not happy occasions. So, you know, that whole idea about, well, you know, you should just comply and you should just do that. That doesn't always work, especially with people of color in this country. So um, the number of people who saw George Floyd's humanity was much higher. Um, and I, and I, that's a direct equation to the number of people who actually care about um, race relations in this country much more but then than now. And so, uh, yes, we're, I think we're, we've reached complacency, but not quite stagnation. And the rest is up to us not to get to that point. Yeah, we saw yesterday... Um, the passage of the national holiday for for Juneteenth. Finally, huh? Finally, finally. Um, and I say to myself, that's good. It's good like people all around 
like hanging a Black Lives Matter sign um, from from your window. But at the same time, to this point of complacency or stagnation, Congress is doing nothing substantively with respect to the protection of the rights of of minorities to vote or um, prison reform or criminal justice reform. So I, I worry, Don, that we are prepared to do the easy stuff and not prepared to do the hard work. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of ironic, right, that you're making a, a national holiday out of the day, um, really two years. It was two years after, really, the true emancipation. It was two years after Abraham Lincoln emancipated the slaves. Um, all of a sudden, this major general from the U.S. Army shows up on the shores of Galveston and, and to tell people, hey, you've been emancipated, right? But the people who were in charge in the South and the general leads of, of the country weren't telling people of color um, slaves that they were emancipated. But the irony here is that um, we're celebrating that and making it a national holiday, but yet we're trying to restrict the voting rights of people of color around the country. Yet we're telling people that the election was stolen by people who live in large urban areas in cities like Atlanta and Philadelphia uh, and Detroit. Um, so, yes, so we're doing the easy thing um, just to, you know, as you say, give lip service or just to get sort of um, this uh, um, performative um, act to uh, a nod towards, oh, we're fixing the problem of racism in this country. We fixed it. Look, we've honored you for Juneteenth. Therefore, we're doing our job. I think, obviously, I'm, not that I think, I know and you know that it goes much deeper um, than that. Yeah, so I think that, obviously, the problems go much deeper. If, you, if, they, if, if our lawmakers really wanted to do something about uh, racism in this country, and really, they would, they would um, promote the teaching of all of our history in this country, the contributions of black and brown people in this country. They wouldn't be trying to limit uh, what is taught the history, what, what part of our history is taught to children uh, in elementary school, in junior high school, in high school. I went to an all-black Catholic school, elementary school. I didn't learn about Juneteenth. I didn't learn about Tulsa. I didn't learn about the German Coast Uprising. I didn't learn about a lot of these things, a lot of figures in our history uh, who are of African descent. Why? Because that was on purpose. I was taught that in 1492, Columbus saw the ocean blue. And we know that this country was here before the Europeans got here, that this country was conquered by Europeans, that there was land that was taken by Europeans. But the Native Americans were here, and who speaks for them? And so um, if they really wanted to do something, they would address all of those issues. And if they did, then they wouldn't get an, an insurrection on Capitol Hill from people who believe that the country was built in their image, and therefore whatever candidate that they think should win the election should be the candidate, whether someone else was duly elected or not. Yeah. Eddie Gloud Jr. in his book, uh, Begin Again, says, the idea of America is in deep trouble. We stand on a knife's edge. And I think we're on that, that, that knife's edge. And you write, similarly, acknowledging that we have a race problem is the first step in solving it. We live in an entrenched socioeconomic system that statistically favors white consumers, white businesses, white stories, white iconography, white male politicians and power brokers, and a widely accepted version of a vigorously scrubbed white history. He's right. I mean, <laughs> it, is, it is vigorously scrubbed. Our, the history is, is the his, Michael, it all depends on who's telling the, the history, whose perspective the history is coming from. And the whole point of the country, as we say, is supposed to be a melting pot of all kinds of people. Therefore, the history of this country should be told by and it, in what should be included in that history are the perspectives of all kinds of people, especially the people who helped to build the country for free. The, 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 the history is being told in this country and has been told purposely uh, to elevate one narrative, a certain group of people, and to denigrate or downgrade or downplay uh, the perspective and the contributions of another group of people, and that's um, black people and people of African descent. It's just no, and, and Native Americans, there's just no way around it, especially the more daily that we learn about events that have happened in our country, 
that we're in this technology and information age where we can get information uh, and at, in, in a single second on a cell phone as I hold the cell phone up, and we get to start to learn about all of those events, then you really get to realize like, wow, why didn't I know this? No one told me this. And so if we know the facts and we know the truth, then it's harder to exploit people's ignorance. It's harder to co-opt people um, for, with misinformation. And so I believe that's how you get to an insurrection. Those people got to that capital because and went into that capital, and they're doing what they're doing. They're believing in this big lie because of misinformation. They don't know our history. And if you don't know our past, then you, you uh, are ignorant of the present, and you will be ignorant of the future. Right. The, the Department of Education, we're in a, I, I think we're in a history, history war moment, Don. The, the, the teaching of real history versus whitewashed history is really what is being joined at the moment. The Department of Education recently called for a renewed stress in the classroom on the, quote, unbearable human cost of systemic racism and the consequences of slavery. So that's the Department of Education um, yeah. saying that. In response to that Department of Education call for the renewed stress of the unbearable cost of racism, Mitch McConnell issued a formal letter demanding more patriotism in history and calling the Democrats' plan divisive nonsense. So we're we're in a history is war. Who who's going to who's what history is going to be taught um, will, in some sense, determine how or if we can move forward. Well, uh, this is going to shock you, but I actually think that Mitch McConnell is right. But what he has wrong is his idea of what patriotism is, and patriotism is is knowing the whole truth. It's not just standing there and performatively standing in front of a flag and pledging your allegiance. It's not pledging your allegiance and pretending that um, Confederate figures in our country and, and this, all this iconography is really good for the country. That's not patriotism. Patriotism is abiding by the Constitution. It's including all people uh, in, the, in the Constitution. It is um, equality and equity for all people. So if he wants to teach about that, if that's what we should be teaching in our schools, then he's exactly right. But his idea of what patriotism is is wrong. I think that we are in, this is the battle of our lives right now, um, and the battle of the identity of the country. And the only way I think, one of the only ways I think we're going to fix it is that, again, we teach the true history of the country. And there's nothing wrong with talking about Columbus, and there's nothing wrong with talking about how people of color got here and what their contributions were, and that there were, there was a slave ship or slave ships that arrived here before the Mayflower. There's nothing wrong with teaching that. And that shouldn't make people feel bad. It should just arm them with knowledge about what the history of the country is. That's it. It's, it's quite that simple. And so then what are people like Mitch McConnell and mainly Republicans? What are they so afraid of? Why are they so afraid of having an inclusive history? That is a good question for them to answer. Yeah. Well, because it doesn't fit the, the in some sense, we've talked about the big, the big lie in terms of the election. But really the big lie is the way history is taught um, in, in our schools. I always thought that if I were in charge, and as my children would say, and thankfully or not, but if, <laughs> if I were in, in charge, that which I would be trying to impose is standards in school textbooks that teach honest history. The, the, the author, Ibram Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, says that we need to read books that do not reinforce old ideas about who we think we are, what we think America is, what we mm -hmm. think racism is. Instead, we need to read books that are difficult or, an, or unorthodox, that don't go down easily. Books that force us to confront our self-serving beliefs and make us aware that I am not a racist is a slogan of denial. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I think that we should be doing that. We should, we should also be doing that with our media. We should also be doing that especially so with the people in our lives. 
but yeah, we should be doing that when it comes to history as well. And when it comes to, uh, informing ourselves, uh, through books. So even, even is correct. He's talking about it, um, on an academic level, which I think is very important, but just in our everyday lives for people who aren't quite as academic as even Max Kendi, who's a very smart man. Um, if you, if you use that same philosophy in your daily life, it will help the situation. It will make you a better person. You know, Michael, if you watch me, I always say, go out and find a friend who doesn't look like you, who doesn't think like you, who doesn't live in your same neighborhood or go to your same church. And then that will help uh, deal with this problem of racism and make you a more rounded person. Um, if you look around in my life, I have people from all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, all different religions. Um, you know, I have uh, friends who are black, white, um, Asian, um, Muslim, Native American friends. I have friends who are um, trans, gender, um, men and women. So um, to me, it's just sort of my normal set point is to, uh, in, to be inclusive and not surround myself with people who look like me. Is my family black? Yeah, my family's black. Do I spend a lot of time with them? Not as much as I would like. Um, um, do I have African-American people in my life? Yes. Do I spend time with them? Absolutely. Um, and so I think that do I have, you know, as I said, do I have white people in my life? Do I spend time with them? Absolutely. And I don't discriminate against that. I learn from every single person. So if you can carry Ibram's philosophy uh, about doing things that are difficult and having difficult conversations with people who are not like you, then I think that can only help you. Look, I have a podcast called The Handoff. Every single night with Chris Cuomo, we do this handoff on CNN where we talk about just issues or what's going on with us or whatever it is that is happening during the day. And sometimes we fight and sometimes we hug each other, you know, give each other a television hug and agree, have an agree fest. And other times it's mixed. But whatever it is, it's true. And at the end of the segment, we, we go away by saying, hey, I love you. I'll see you later. And that's how people should act in the real world. It's the way that we used to act. But for some reason, I don't know why we have gotten away from that. Yeah. Well, I, I think, Don, it's because in some measure it's just hard. It's hard to confront the history of our country, and it's hard to own up to what we know and what we don't know. When, when I, I was telling you before we started the podcast that when I left the day-to-day of, of television life, I ran for the Advisory Neighborhood Commission which is the most local form of government here in the District of Columbia, and was elected, and we are dealing with all sorts of issues. We stood up a racial and social equity standing committee to address equity and racial equality issues, and we also deal with with potholes and and and, and fallen trees. But when I was campaigning, that's important stuff too. Potholes are really important. Very important. As Mayor <laughs> Lindsay, what happened to him when he failed to remove the snow in New York? The, the thing that struck me most when I was campaigning, I, I uh, knocked on the door of an African-American woman's house, and, and uh, we had a nice chat. And then she said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure, of course. What? She says, do you see racism in your everyday life? Do you see it every day? And I paused and I thought, I said, I, I, don't, I don't think so. And she said, well, then. You don't know what you're looking for. And that really struck me. Um, and, and it's sort of you who wrote in your book, you said it's easy to condemn whites. It's easy to condemn white supremacy when it's writ large in the form of Confederate monuments and church burnings. It's harder to push back against microaggressions and small acts of discrimination that tumble by in a babbling brook of subconscious influences. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the challenge these little microaggressions that we don't know what we're looking for um, allows the system to, to be perpetuated. Yeah, I think that um, there's also a, a right near there where I talked about the um, mashed potato racism that we swallow all the time until you realize it has, um, that, that it has a glass in it. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think people, that, well, that's the whole idea, Michael, of privilege, is that if you don't have to deal with it, then it doesn't exist. And so if something doesn't exist and it doesn't exist, how can you have knowledge of it? Unless you become curious, as um, we have been stating here, and either read those books, as Ibram X. Kendi said, that are difficult and hard, uh, that take you outside of your comfort zone, or unless you um, 
befriend uh, or be in some sort of relationship with people who are different than you and who challenge you, uh, unless you go to media sources that don't necessarily reaffirm your beliefs, um, then, you know, it doesn't exist for you. you. You may not know it's even there. And it's, listen, ignorance is bliss. And um, so, yeah, that's all true. If, if you, if, you know, do I think about racism all the time? No. And am I obsessed with it? No. Am I inundated with it? No. But is there something that happens almost every single day where I'm confronted by it either, um, um, you know, tacitly or implicitly or not? Yes. There's something every single day, even if it's a, um, a comment uh, from a commentator or uh, a criticism of me from uh, a media organization or something that's on social media or someone out in the public in a, in a restaurant or on the street or what have you. There's always some little thing. But I think uh, as I write in the book, Michael, black people live in the state, you know, when you're, de when you're dealing with a, when you're in a race, it's ready, set, go. You get ready and you're like, okay, I'm ready. And then you're in the set position where you're up on your haunches and you're like, okay, so black people live in that set position, whether it is um, true or not, it's, a, it's sort of a paranoia where we have to worry about, is this discrimination? Is something gonna pop off? Is somebody, is somebody gonna do something uh, untoward to me or something that's even based in uh, unconscious bias? We live there. And whether or not you believe it is true or not, we do live in that, that's our reality. And whether it's a, you know, and, and sometimes it's a paranoia. So, um, yeah, your colleague is right. If you don't see it almost every day, at least, some form of it, then you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. One of the wonderful things about your, your book was you had these little um, vignettes, slivers of um, uh, America told through, through stories. And um, to the exact point that we're talking about of these little micro- Aggression. So this one is not as micro uh, to me, but would you tell Don the, the, the story of the cutting boards? So um, this was, as I write in the book, it was, um, uh, it was during, during quarantine or during the pandemic. And I said that the little shops in Sag Harbor uh, were beginning to test uh, the, the climate and they were like amber snails, I think is what I put. Uh, and so that they were, everyone was kind of opening Excuse me. Uh, so the stores were opening and people were beginning to try to get their businesses back open. And during the quarantine, I, uh, I would make lemonade for my fiance and I and my neighbors. I have these Myers lemon trees that I bring inside during the winter and I save all the lemons uh, from them. And um, during the winter, and I use them to make lemonade. In the summer, they grow, you know, these lemons again. And then I take them and I save them and whatever. And so I was ruining my countertops because the the acid from the lemons um, was peeling off the coating on the countertop. And so I, you know, I called someone and I said, I don't know what, what's going on with these countertops. And they said, are you, are you putting citrus on your countertop? And I said, yes. And they said, that's the problem. And I said, oh, okay. So they said, go get some cutting boards and place them everywhere so that you don't ruin your counter. And I said, oh, okay, got it. And so I just happened to be walking back to my house one day and I saw these huge um, pizza peels that looked like cutting boards. And I said, that would be perfect for the countertops and I won't ruin it. And so I went to buy the things, whatever the guy told me. I said, oh, and I went in to pick out the ones I wanted. He says, I can't let you in the store. And I said, oh, okay. And so, um, you know, I've got the ones I wanted. I carried them home. They were heavy. And then I walked back by after I was going to get some coffee or something. And uh, I walk by the store and there's someone in there shopping. And I looked and I said, and I knocked on the door and I said, I just went to the door. I said, I thought that, uh, that you weren't letting people. And he looked around and he goes, um, um, oh, 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 um, she's training. And I said, and it didn't look like she's training. She's carrying a bag. She's like holding product in her hand and she's shopping. So I said, okay. And so I walked back home and it, I, it felt really uncomfortable. I had that feeling. And I talked to Tim about it, my fiance. And then I called my pals um, in some in media and, I call my family and everyone's like, you know, um, it makes you feel uncomfortable. I would take them back. And I said, yeah, but I don't want to cause a stir. And I don't know if it is what it is and blah, blah, blah. And they said, you know, it, it doesn't matter what it is. They all thought that it was wrong and that, you know, 
uh, that I was being, I had been discriminated against, but I wasn't sure and I didn't want to cause a stir. So my decision was to return them and um, not to cause any sort of big, you know, stink, but just to get the message across that if it was what I thought and, and everyone thought, then um, you weren't going to make the sale. And at the end of the day, it's really about um, everyone learning a lesson. And it's not just about calling people out and embarrassing them. And so, um, yeah, so I returned them. And when I, when I returned them, I looked at them and I said, are you sure that you, that um, she, you, you know, I walked by and you said, and I, as I bought these that I couldn't shop. And then I come by, I walked back by and someone else is shopping in your store. And I said, are you sure? And he goes, no, 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 no. I said, okay. And I just, he gave me my receipt and I walked away and I think we both, you know, it was fine. He got the, he got the message and no harm, no foul. So uh, I, I don't think that every situation has to be videotaped um, and to cause an, an international or a national stir. I think there are ways to teach people lessons in everyday life. And isn't that really what, what makes a difference and moves people is you can move them when you, when you affect their wallet. Yeah. So yeah. you and I wasn't going to guess what, Michael. I wasn't going to include that in the book because oh, I thought it was I thought it was too privileged. And you know that that's the thing that relates to everyone is that you don't you can face discrimination. Um, it taught a lesson about facing discrimination whether you are a person of means or not. It also talked about the paranoia that that black people live in, and it talked about the um, uh, about how white people you know don't even realize some of those things and they've never had to think about whether it's uh, possible, whether it's true or not. Most white people don't even have to think about those things. It, it's an experience that you never had. So that's what your colleague is saying. You don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. You, you, you love the movies as do I. And I always, when I read that, that um, story, I, I thought of um, it's not a racial, but it's a, it's an economic uh, similarity in pretty woman. Um, mm-hmm. Julia Roberts is, you know, dressed up as, as, a, as a prostitute and she wants to buy a dress. She has to go to buy a dress. Remember when she knocks on the door of the high end dress store and the snooty salespeople look at her and said, we have nothing here for you. Mm-hmm. She goes back to the hotel and the manager says, let me make a phone call and gets her an introduction. And she buys a dress and then she's walking back with her arms full of packages, remember? And, and she, <laughs> she goes into that store, you know, showing her packages in her new dress. She says, do you remember me? They said, no, no. They said, well, you said, we have nothing here for you. And she holds her packages up. She says, mistake. Big mistake. Huge. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> and so my wife and I always say, when we have these little moments, huge, huge mistake. Huge um, mistake. Yeah. And, That's and, how I thought. And, and listen, I didn't even need to gloat because, it, was, it just it just made me feel bad. It was just a bad experience because uh, and, and no one wants to live in that sort of paranoia, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So in your book, you you talk a lot about economics and um, whether economics is really the um, the driver of of where where we can perhaps find hope of of change and. One of the things I remember talking to Ron Brownstein about his book, um, Rock Me on the Water, and he was saying that cultural change usually precedes political change. And you talk about how in advertising today, you turn on television and you look at who is the family being portrayed in advertisements, and it's much more multicultural, interracial, gay, straight, Etc. And and so you have an you have perhaps some optimism here that that culture is is going to drive economics. It's going to cause businesses to not do business with those who don't follow the progressive view of where we need to to go. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you. Um, yeah, economics is, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would necessarily say it's a progressive view. I just think it is the humane view of where we need to go. I mean, who doesn't want to be uh, treated equally? 
Um, equality is not, um, is not a part of ideology. It shouldn't be. Uh, that's, a, that's a human right. That's a right as an American. That's part of what the, uh, the promise of the, the country, those documents, uh, that if you, if you really believe in um, 1776, if you believe in that, then you should believe in the promises of, of those documents. And um, the Constitution, the preamble, and all of that, they say that all men are created equal. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's, the only, that's the only way we need to go, that America is about inclusion and religious freedom and all of that. If you believe in that, if that's your, your idea of patriotism, then you should be fighting, regardless of what side of the political aisle that you're on, you should be fighting for the inclusion of all people and for the right to be able to um, stand up for our flag, kneel down for our flag, love the flag, protest the flag, all of those things. So um, yeah, and, and it's, I think that if, if I don't personally believe in my personal life, I don't believe in calling for boycotts of people. People can do what they want. If you choose to boycott a product, that's your business. It's the same thing as saying, I don't like this product, because it doesn't taste good. I prefer Pepsi over Coke or Coke over Pepsi. That's your right as an American to be able to do that. So I don't like to call for, in my, at least in my platform, for boycotting people, but um, you can show their strength in numbers. And if you start affecting people's pocketbooks and their bottom line, they're going to pay attention. Typically in history, that has been that and changing laws, but especially affecting people economically, that has been the thing that gets people's attention and that changes behavior. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Um, but I think you're looking at what corporations, have, you know, at least what they said after George Floyd, I think we need to do, there needs to be some research done, a deep dive done on what companies and corporations have done and what, what they've actually put into place and what changes they've actually made um, since George Floyd's death and to see if that actually stuck um, and if they did indeed make changes and it wasn't just lip service. Yeah, I think that, um, I think that's right. I think, Don, though, the 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 problem the problem is what you call we're in an uncivil war in in in, in some respects and it's as you define it it's the ideological conflict between those who cling to the barbaric ethnic caste system and those who are determined to pr progress be beyond it the 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 subtitle of your book um, is what, what I say to my I say to racism. my friends about racism so. With this uncivil war that, that I agree with you we're in, um, and it's a history's war, and how will the history be rewritten to reflect truth? Because in the end, this is all about truth. Truth is, is what we're, we're, we're after here. What is it that you say to your friends, black and white, and I expect it's different between the two, um, about racism? Tell, tell us about that. Well, listen, I don't really go into conversations with people of different ethnicities uh, with a different mindset about racism. I mean, what I do is I try to be more curious and less judgmental. I think a conversation just naturally among people of different ethnicities is just going to go in different directions. I think part of the, you know, people who, black people who read my book and read other books about racism will say, ah, yeah, 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 right. I get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's right. Yeah, whatever. Or, it may give them some new uh, way of thinking about an old problem. And I think for the most part, for whites who read the book, they're like, wow, I didn't know that happened. Oh my gosh, like the incident with the pizza peel, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's not that I go into conversations with white or black people with a different idea about it. I just go into it with an open mind. And then, but as I write in the book that we have to offer people grace. I know that sometimes people of color Many times, you know, it's, it's, it's tiring to continue to have to tell people about racism and to explain things to people and to black explain, right, or to, to uh, be the African-American authority. But James Baldwin writes similarly that we, it's the only way, you know, uh, the very few conscious blacks and the very few conscious whites, as he puts it, um, that we are in this marriage. And the only way that we're going to fix it is that if the conscious people, um, take hold of the problem and, and tackle it. Yeah. Well, but you, but you do write, um, you write black brothers and sisters. We must swallow our righteous wrath, making mm -hmm. it clear that we will do our best to forgive though we dare not forget. You write 
White brothers and sisters, I challenge you to overcome your uncertainty and allow yourselves to be schooled without expecting black people to school you. Mm-hmm. So, so there is a difference. There, there is a difference um, in, yeah. in, in approach to, the, as you said, some whites will have these aha moments and some black people say, you know, so what's new with that? You know, I, I, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I mean, I think it's uh, I think that um, the biggest issue is um, people who become uh, you, you don't want to become what you fight against. And so you don't want to become intolerant if you're fighting for tolerance, right? And I hate that word, but that's just the, the, what we, how we say it in the vernacular. I don't want anybody to tolerate me, but just for the sake of having everyone understand what I'm talking about. You don't want to become intolerant of people if, you, if that's what you're fighting against. And sometimes that can happen. And then also, um, as someone on the other side, you don't want to uh, make an issue of um, a personal issue of how dare you call me racist or I'm not racist rather than, because then you make the issue about you. That's what privilege is. And it becomes more about you than the actual act of racism. So that's kind of what I'm saying in, in that sentence right there. Open your minds and your hearts, both sides, uh, and try to help people. Don't become intolerant if you're fighting against intolerance. And don't make it about you if you are trying to learn about someone else's um, experience. Yeah. In, 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 the, in the book, um, you have, as I said, these American parables, which are, as you call the slivers of human experience that when taken together speak to the toxicity of racism and call us out the specific personal mandates. Um, and the stories, as I read them, speak over and over to an empathy deficit. That, that, that empathy um, is sort of, in your words, the key to a kind of social evolution that we should strive for. But I'm not sure that I, I'm seeing that. Empathy is key to the kind of social evolution we can and should strive for in this moment. Mm-hmm. If we're going to change American capacity for empathy, we yeah. must question storytelling that adheres to the old caste system of heroes and villains. Yeah. And I, and I like that. So talk a little bit about empathy, um, if you would, Don. Well, I think that any, I mean, anytime that you've ever learned anything, anytime that you've ever grown as a person, anytime that you've um, ever had to allow someone else's um, experience um, and um, uh, I guess experience and just someone else's humanity into your own, um, you have to be empathetic. And, And that's usually done through empathy. And I, I think that, um, to me, that relates to seeing someone else's humanity because we are all human. We are all fallible. We have this tendency now, especially in this climate and where, you know, this time that we're living in is to not allow people to be human, to expect them to be perfect, to expect them to think exactly like we do. Um, so I think that, um, we have to get out of the mindset that everything is fixed, that everything that we say and think is right. Um, and if you can do that, if you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, then I think that we can go far, far beyond where we think we can in a very short amount of time. That's the key. The um, cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's um, book. Tries Brilliant to, book. Yeah. Uh, if, when we talk about an education and educating yourself in uncomfortable ways, that is a, a must-read book. And she talks about the American caste system, um, not dissimilar to the Nazi caste system, not dissimilar to the Indian caste system. But what she says that was interesting, and, and I'd like you to talk about a little bit, she says, in many ways, this was not about, the 2016 election was not about economic insecurity as a driver of the white vote. But she says... In many ways, a sense of group threat is a much tougher opponent than economic downturn because it's a psychological ma- mindset rather than an actual event or misfortune. So she's, she's, what she's addressing is 2042 when, when our country will be uh, minority majority, minority majority, um, state. And she's saying that, that 
is a mindset that people are just having a difficult time uh, adapting to. And that's driving behaviors between people who should align with one another. Poor, poor whites and, 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 and blacks should, should be aligned because they're mistreated in economically in many similar ways. But it's not working that way, is it? No, because people are exploiting um, people. Um, they're exploiting their lack of knowledge. Uh, one, because we don't really know that we're not taught the full history. And if we, it, and if they did, then I think people wouldn't allow politicians to exploit their lack of knowledge and just to exploit them to keep power. And that's what's happening. She's talking about poor blacks. She's talking about whites and poor blacks who really do have more in common than anything. There's a, there's a huge socioeconomic component to what happens in this country. It's not just racism. Um, it is, it's, it's casteism, uh, as well. Um, and, uh, and it's the, just discrimination based on other, based on another factor besides race. Race is a very important one. That's how we abuse the caste system in this country. Um, and that, that's how we perfected it. And if you look at other countries, um, they took, as Isabel Wilkerson writes, they took and they studied racism in this country, uh, to, <laughs> to, to help solidify their racism and their caste systems in their country. So they learn from America. Um, I think that when people start to realize that they have more in common than they do, um, you know, than, than they do the things that separate them, then that will take care of a big, um, that'll in large part take care of some of the racism in the country because then people will start to see people as equals. Uh, and we are. I mean, look, if you don't have access to money or education or power or agency in the society, at, at some level, it doesn't matter what race you are. You're still, you, you still don't have those tools that everyone needs to survive. And so if you have that fundamental, that, that, that um, fundamental right or lack of that right in common, then that's going to, uh, I think, help to, you to gain uh, power and gain understanding of each other. And then you can't be exploited by people. Yeah. Or co-opted by them. Then you don't end up at an insurrection on Capitol Hill and then you don't end up being prosecuted for it and then complaining because you think that your rights are being taken away because you were doing an American protest. Right. It's but crazy, this, but I think it's all related. No, I think that's right. But this notion of racial hierarchies is, yeah. is, is interesting. It was an interesting learn, um, uh, for me, I hadn't thought about people's behavior being modeled by um, the, their sense of their own race, place in the racial hierarchy rather than, you know, sort of economic grievance. It, it, there's this book, uh, I don't know if you've read it, called um, White Fragility, Why It's Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, uh, Robin DiAngelo. Yeah, I know of Robin. I haven't read Robin's book. I should read it, though. Well, she says something that's interesting. She says, she says, white people are unused to unpleasantness. They're unused to unpleasantness. Racial hierarchies tell white people that they are entitled to peace and deference. As such, white fragility holds racism in place. Yeah, that's true. I had a conversation I write about in a book with um, Jacqueline Stewart of, um, of American Movie, um, not American movie classic, she's, uh, Turner, yeah, Turner classic movie. Right. Um, the, the, I, I, she's the University of Chicago cinema teacher, right? Yes. So I had a conversation with Jacqueline Stewart about that when we were talking about um, uh, iconography, movies, um, Gone with the Wind being uh, removed from HBO Max and, and what have you. And um, what she said is that um, she said that people are have to going, uh, people are going to have to learn to have their pleasure interrupted. And so, and that's hard for certain groups, especially white folks in this country, because as Robin DiAngelo says, um, they feel that they, they, they feel that they have the right to, you know, peace, to everything being peaceful and going their way. That's just, I mean, but listen, think about it. That's just the way that people have been taught. That's the way we've been socialized. That's what history has taught us is right. And, 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 and the, it's what history tells us the way it should be. But that's not necessarily so. Again, I keep going back to if we taught the true history of this country, starting with elementary school, then we wouldn't end, with, then we wouldn't end up with people who um, were so upset about having their pleasure interrupted. Yeah. It's, it's like Pleasantville. 
<laughs> so, Don, um, we're, we're, we're sort of almost out of, out of time, um, mm-hmm. but there, there are two things that um, maybe we can, we can end on. And, and, you know, we're talking about how overwhelmingly truth matters, but um, you wrote something which I thought was really um, a terrific line. You said, the last thread left between George Floyd's body and soul was love. In yeah. our honest breath, if our honest breath is not love, I don't know how to fight through it all again. I need to believe we'll wake up, rise up, and stay standing th- this time. Which is a wonderful sort of conclusion. Uh, it, you know, sort of the Beatles, all you need is love in, in, in some sense. But, yeah. but talk about that, because I think it's an well, important concept. To, to socialize in our minds. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, it was, his last dying breath was love, but it was also people on the street who uh, loved him from a distance and didn't really, wasn't, they weren't uh, family members who actually um, got justice for him. So there was love there. But his dying words were, Mama, help me. Help me, Mama, who's his mom who had passed. And when you have a grown man calling out for his mother, um, you know, that's love. And that's also desperation. And so, you know, what I'm saying there in, in that, those lines or that line is that we need to see people's humanity. George Floyd was a human being. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not just about his past um, and, you know, what he had done or what he might have been doing there. It was about what was happening to him in the moment. And in the moment, there were people there who didn't see his humanity. And he was calling out for them to see his humanity, begging them. And then because they didn't see his humanity, they couldn't feel the love that he had in his body. He called out for his mother. And he said, Mama, 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 help me. He was calling for the person I think that he knew loved him unconditionally. And that was his last dying wish is for someone, the person who loved him unconditionally to come help and save him or an indication signaling to her that I'm coming to meet you at this moment. Yeah. Uh, we, we began with Baldwin. We'll end with Baldwin. Uh, Baldwin writes, uh, when we're asking, how do we make progress? We've been talking about that all hour. How do we make progress? And we, we resolve that it's truth and learning and acceptance of uh, our history. But he writes, the solution resides in relatively conscious whites yeah, relatively conscious blacks. I just said that, Michael. Right, insisting on creating, <laughs> but insisting on it and creating consciousness in others. So it's this, it's this teaming um, that has to take place, and then a teaching component of the uh, of that cohort, right? Yeah. So can I? Uh, yes, and you ha- it's a teaching moment. But here, here's what I write, and it's on page 195 of my book, Michael. And you mentioned John Lewis. I said I keep thinking about. Um, no, you mentioned James Baldwin, but uh, I, I keep thinking about John Lewis is what I write. I said, I keep thinking about John Lewis on Bloody Sunday in the context of recent efforts to have the Edmund Pettus Bridge renamed for him. Progress is John Lewis standing on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Healing is you and me standing on the John Lewis Bridge. Yeah. yeah. That's the progression. Right. And that's and, true progress. Yeah. And if the hard work is done beyond the symbol of the renaming. If we say this is only a first step and the hard work still remains. Yeah. But in that line, what I'm saying is, is when you, is, is the healing is us standing uh, on the John Lewis bridge. That means we're okay with it being the John Lewis bridge. We're okay with getting rid of certain iconography. It is part of what's in our heart. It is the right thing to do. And so I'm saying in that is that that's what happens when you begin to do the work is that you start to include everyone in this country in the history of it and you don't fight against it. It's a great read, Don. The book is called This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Don Lemon, you're a terrific guest. You're a terrific host on CNN and you're a terrific friend. And I thank you very much for being with me today. It's been a real pleasure and I could have this conversation with you for hours. Um, so maybe we'll do it again in person. Thank you, Michael. It's been it's a real pleasure. Thank you, Don. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. 
Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.